Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. The Queen of Dirt Island by Donald Ryan. All the griefs, death of someone who matters on the second page, suicide, the unavoidable losses of old age, children, the impossibility of protecting them fully, their growing up and leaving, and also those who fail to launch, rape, psychological suffering, loneliness, loss from which one cannot recover, rages burning for years. Underscoring and superseding all the griefs in Donald Ryan's new novel, The Queen of Dirt Island, are joys of every kind. Here is the baby taking her first steps in the sunlight, her long walk through her life. The Nana who will not be fooled or shamed or let you quit. So go on, granddaughter, she says. Strike in the name of God while the iron is hot, let you. And the ferocious, loving, unstoppable mother, Eileen, who, in her Wellingtons and yellow jacket and her film star sunglasses, flamboyantly saluted her neighbors, old and new, so that no one would be in any doubt that she was the queen of Dirt Island. Love is the great triumph and the great mystery, and the love among the Aylward women of Nina, Ireland, relentless, reliable, and hilarious, is what I think every person hopes for. If language, lyric, lovely, and funny, steeped in county tipperary, and women, men come and go, rarely center a chapter, and are often useless, sometimes cruel, are of no interest to you, The Queen of Dirt Island is not your next read. Ryan's book is a celebration in an embroidered, unrestrained, joyful, aphoristic, and sometimes profane style of both. The four women in the household... Nana is the mother-in-law of Eileen, and after the death of Eileen's husband on the second page, her BFF, Eileen is ma'am to Sarche, who will grow up to become a mother of Pearl. Sarche, if she ever goes to America, Eileen says, the Yanks won't have a clue how to pronounce it, is the sun around which the other planets, including Pearl, revolve. And although the story is not always told from her point of view, Sarche is our protagonist and our guide. The structure of the novel is beads on a chain. Each chapter is never more than 500 words, always with a one-word title. Cut, move, demesne, fear, and ending usually with the kind of line associated with a short story, or perhaps less enticingly, with flash fiction. These are vignettes, often powerful, sometimes too on the nose, but certainly never drooping or dragging. If you are the kind of reader who loves the connective tissue, the strong, sinuous, sinewy chain of narrative, you may find the quick march of the very short chapters disjointed and off-putting. But for this reader, the shape of the chapters, from opening lines to endings, and now she found herself overheated and tongue-tied in the face of his desperation, hobbled by her pity for him, her insistent, clawing shame at herself for causing him this pain. And she found herself paralyzed within a corona of ferocious love, forms their own satisfying chain, and it is Circe who is the chain for the entire narrative, within and around her family. 
The Queen of Dirt Island begins in the 1980s. The Celtic Tiger, Ireland's business and real estate boom and bust, and the troubles of Northern Ireland are forces that move this family, but neither overshadow them nor push anyone into contrived crisis. A simpleton uncle makes bad choices, none of which are, in the end, ruinous. A tough uncle dies a hero to some Inia and is a brother and a bad guy to others. The novel sees us into the present and into a modern Ireland. Ryan, the author of Strange Flowers and From a Low and Quiet Sea, dedicates his new book to his mother and has shared in many interviews the way in which his own beloved mother and his own equally beloved and admired wife have shaped the characters of the three women and Little Pearl. I don't doubt it. The women don't let you down, although, not surprisingly, young Pearl, beautiful inside and out, is mostly just a plot point for a few deeply distressing and gripping chapters, and a dancing sunbeam. There are two men, consistently bad actors, one a heartless, priggish, land-grabbing villain, and the other soft, dreamy, preoccupied with his talent and his destiny, and it's hard to decide which is the worse. But neither ends up bringing much to the novel as a whole, and I found myself resenting, on behalf of these fine, fierce, outward women, the pages, the narrow currents of plot, expended on these undeserving men. The Queen of Dirt Island gives the women their due, and the reader is rewarded. This review was written by Amy Bloom, whose most recent book is the best-selling memoir, In Love. Wanderlust, an eccentric explorer, an epic journey, a lost age, by Reed Mittenbuehler. Peter Fruschen spent the winter of 1907 alone in the dark. A junior member of a Danish scientific expedition to northern Greenland, he was, in his own words, just past 20, full of a lust for novel adventures. And so, like a fool, he volunteered to spend the season manning a remote weather station. As wolves slaughtered his dogs, and the icy condensation of his breath caused his cabin's frozen walls to creep inward, his thoughts turned sterile and unattractive, and he began having extended conversations with his cutlery. But the ordeal did not break him, for Fruchin had fallen in love with the Arctic. Fruchin is the subject of Reed Mittenbuehler's Wanderlust, an attempt to reconcile the contradictions of, as Mittenbuehler writes, a highly sociable person who, somewhat inexplicably, was drawn to some of the most isolated places on earth. Mittenbuehler paints Fruchin as a rare explorer who saw the world's remote corners not as territory to be conquered, but as a place to call home. Although narratively clumsy, it is a charming portrait of a man who traveled the world with an open mind, whose natural warmth never faltered in the cold. As an explorer, Fruchin distinguished himself not through feats of heroism, but by actually giving a damn about the people he met during his travels. After visiting Greenland on several lengthy expeditions, he came to stay in 1910, founding a trading post in Thule in the islands far north in partnership with his friend Nude Rasmussen. He met the Inuit on their own terms, learning their language and eating their food, 
working alongside them to survive in an environment where one had to grow used to the reality of famine, starvation, and even the occasional killing of children who would otherwise starve. The first half of the book, which is based on Frucian's decades of writing and lectures about his time with the Inuit, is an absolute joy. Between gripping accounts of his travels across the ice, we get stories of sex and revelry and tragedy and love, all with Inuit as the heroes. Mittenbuehler acknowledges that it's problematic to tell indigenous stories through the eyes of a white man, but he's right that Frucian was a better observer than most. He had the rare ability to keep his ears open and his mouth shut. And he told Inuit stories, as Mittenbuehler puts it, without outrage, fear, or judgment. Frucian and Rasmussen disagreed on the idea, popular among some Danes, of leaving the Inuit isolated like museum pieces, writes Mittenbuehler. Both men were sensitive to the impacts of change and approached northern Greenland in the spirit of having a cultural exchange, ready to receive as well as to give. Of course, this exchange was intended to make both men rich, but Fruchin's love for the Inuit and his eagerness to submerge himself in their culture feel genuine. When he met a woman named Makwapaluk, one of the three survivors of a horrifying epidemic on Salve Island, he was charmed by her skill as a storyteller. As Mittenbuehler puts it, when she talked, she owned the room and filled it with warm laughter even when the contents of her stories were grisly. When Frucian proposed marriage, she said yes, changing her name to Navarana to commemorate the new period in her life. Their romance is the best part of the book. Mittenbuehler lingers over endearing details, like the way Frucian liked to watch her smoke a pipe, as if she were a crusty old sea captain, gripping the stem between her teeth while puffing away. When she got pregnant, he worked on his spearfishing so that he could better provide for his growing family. When she went into labor, he and Rasmussen attempted to help by frantically making coffee. Although the child was probably not his biological son, Frucian followed Inuit practice by treating his son's paternity as little more than a technicality. He loved the boy Makusik fiercely. I decided to spend the rest of my life in Thule, he wrote, to be all that a father should be, to make my son strong and brave and good, and to help him avoid all my mistakes. A daughter, Pippaluk, soon followed. But as the book's title suggests, Frucian had trouble staying put. Invited by Rasmussen to join the Fifth Thule Expedition, a years-long attempt to document the lives of Inuit peoples from Greenland to Siberia, Frucian and Navarana could not refuse. On the eve of the departure, she contracted influenza and died. Frucian blamed himself, believing that if she had stayed in the north, she might have avoided the epidemic that had likely infected one-third of the world. If I had not been so selfish, she would still be alive, he wrote. She was a finer and better person than anyone I have ever known. But the world saw her only as a little Eskimo girl who was to be looked down upon or ignored. After browbeating the local clergy to bury Navarana in the churchyard, Frucian continued with the expedition, leaving his children in the care of family and friends. Mittenbuehler does not dwell on what it says about Frucian that he was willing to leave his motherless children for years at a time. 
While in Canada, he became trapped overnight in a snowbank. He escaped, in his telling, by using his own frozen feces to hack a hole in the ice. His frostbitten foot never recovered, and he had to amputate the toes, one at a time, with pliers and a ball-peen hammer. His adventuring days were through. It's at this point that Wanderlust falters. Frushin spent the next 30 years having fascinating experiences. He wrote for Hollywood, sheltered refugees from the Nazis, and even won the $64,000 question in 1956. This second half of his life could have been covered in a few chapters or even a lengthy epilogue, but Mittenbuehler stretches it out for almost 200 pages. Even so, Wanderlust is a compelling introduction to one of the most charismatic explorers to ever cross the ice. This review was written by W.M. Akers, who is a novelist and editor and whose latest novel, Pocketful of Stars, is being serialized in the newsletter Strange Times. Users by Colin Winnette Is anxiety the dominant emotion of our time? Anxiety and its attendant feelings of fear and paranoia abound in Colin Winnett's richly imagined fourth novel, Users, where readers meet the fretful and endearing Miles in crisis. A lead creative at an unnamed virtual reality company, Miles has started receiving letter-pressed death threats, and his company's users are in revolt. Guided by the slogan, Dream It and It's Yours, the company invites people to build customized experiences out of the content of their dreams, which a VR program can then respond to, creating a living fantasy limited only by the speed of your internet and the company's servers. In my first round of margin notes, this isn't possible, is it? But most people turn out to have impoverished dreams, consisting primarily of things they could already do in the real world, and they don't stay on the platform long enough. So the company begins offering in-house original experiences to give your unimaginative minds a boost, a little nudge toward the deep end. The most popular is Miles's creation, The Ghost Lover, in which users go about their regular lives while haunted by the ghost of an ex. Forget today's mundane data harvesting concerns. Winnett's VR company can map the reactions, decisions, even lingering emotional responses from what made a user blush to what made them cry out in pain. And then, naturally, it sells that data. Years after the Ghost Lover's launch, Miles and his team face an outcry over accusations of conduct violations, bias, and abuse of power. To avoid responsibility, the company pivots to simultaneous engagement, based on Miles' latest idea, in which multiple users interact in and with the same experience at the same time. Sales skyrocket. Money pours in. To ensure the company's continued market dominance, Miles invents the greatest creation, the egg, a freestanding VR pod that can manipulate and respond to a user's whole body via sensors and bionic sleeves. While contemplating these frightening prospects, readers are also privy to myriad questionable business practices and Miles's constant efforts to buy time for both himself and his company and to avoid blame. 
for all the wonder these inventions evoke, it's wonder laced with dread, since we know that they're taking as much from users as they're giving. Though Miles rescues his company, he's less successful at connecting with his inscrutable wife, Claire, or parenting his surly ten-year-old daughter, Maya, who gets the book's best lines. His six-year-old daughter, Mia, is regularly imperiled by her sister's games. Much of the novel's humor and tenderness emerges in these scenes of family life, where Miles's anxiety renders him helpless, despite his fierce love for his wife and children. Having noted early on that we all kept horrible parts of ourselves alive in the dark, Miles has his own terrifying experience within his invention, setting in motion his downfall. Later sections turn surreal, building upon the book's skillful blurring of fantasy and reality. Though Users is told in refreshingly unadorned prose that lets Winnett's characters and ideas shine, I must admit I read in a state of fascinated humility as a late Gen X Luddite whose only brush with VR was a college demo in 1999. More than the marvelously detailed fictional innovations or the urgent questions about how we're giving our most private selves to tech companies, what stayed with me were the passages of startling beauty about Miles's fear of death and aging and the bittersweet experience of watching his children grow up. He'd been confronted with it for more than a decade now, but it was no less incredible to him that her experiences were being recorded somewhere, stored for later use, and that she was mastering her ability to call upon them, personhood from out of nowhere slowly taking shape before his eyes. He knew he should enjoy it while he could, before she learned to lock it all away inside a baffling human. The second she crystallized, he would lose her. Users is not only a book for today or a warning about tomorrow, but a timeless and moving story about fatherhood and one man's yearning for a more meaningful life. This review was written by Jessamine Chan, who is the author of The School for Good Mothers. An Autobiography of Skin by Lakeisha Carr What does it mean to be a black woman in the United States? How does it feel to inhabit a black woman's body in a society that, for most of its history, defined humanness as white and male? In what ways is her experience still haunted by contradictory representations that emerged out of slavery? The aggressive, hypersexual Jezebel, the nurturing, non-threatening Mammy. To what extent do these portrayals continue to inform perceptions of black women as available for abuse, as willing participants in, if not the causes of, their own alienation, and as somehow, ultimately, impervious to pain? Lakeisha Carr's powerful and timely new novel, An Autobiography of Skin, explores these issues by telling the stories of three contemporary black women— each struggling with different manifestations of trauma that finds its primary expression through their experience of their own physicality. Carr is interested in the expressive potency of the body, and the novel is meticulously structured to highlight its enduring cultural significance. At the same time, the book is less interested in explaining or rationalizing that significance than in dramatizing how it literally feels. 
Nettie, the protagonist of the first section of the book, lives with her husband and makes money giving colonics from her home. Her work with a former stripper mediates her own awareness of how the body's scars can constitute a map of past experience. Watching the silky web-like threads of her parasites pass, she told me again the story of how she got the small burn at the base of her neck. Nettie explains how the thin cut running alongside her left ear was the result of broken glass flying during a fight at baby dolls. And before we were done, she gently lifted the skin around her belly, pointing at her C-section scar, and told me how, when the weather changed, it still itched where they took out her middle child. Much of this section takes place in a secret gambling room behind a convenience store, where Nettie, mourning the anniversary of her mother's passing, goes to relax. Because so many people Nettie encounters there are so clearly and variously suffering from societal neglect, there is something inherently restorative about the attentiveness with which Carr observes them, even as she documents their scars. The scars are overlooked because of both a pervasive tendency to ignore black working-class women's pain and also because of the women's own fears of the repercussions of exposure. This becomes a theme of the second section, where we are introduced to Maya, who explicitly associates the need to hide with assimilation, which, in her view, is not so much a choice once you grow honest with the self about what it takes to survive and thrive in this reality. When you learn how important to that survival it can be to preserve, indeed, hide your very own authenticity, lest the world judge, then devour you whole, with equal parts love and hate. In contrast to Nettie, Maya lives in a middle-class enclave, her relative affluence sustained by her husband's work as a pornographer, a fact that they keep secret both from their white neighbors and Maya's parents. Increasingly obsessed with news reports about police violence against black youth, she begins a misguided effort to protect her two sons, which leads to an act of abuse for which she is sent to a psychiatric ward. While her actions can be interpreted as physicalizing the way many parents hurt their children out of a warped desire to protect them, they also speak to a larger truth, encapsulated by Maya's husband's reaction to her behavior. He reminds her that the violence is not new. White people have been killing us since the beginning of time, he screamed at her. Black people, too. It is not until the third section of the book, narrated by Maya's best friend, Katina, that we are presented with the possibility that all of these characters are literally being haunted. Katina, like her grandmother, has the ability to see the malicious ghosts that surround them, and that, however disembodied, are nevertheless real. The recognition of her presence signifies how the past is, for these characters, deeply felt and a part of their experiential reality. It is a testament to Carr's power as a writer that she is able to so clearly represent these aspects of her character's experiences with such intimacy and honesty. In that sense, the book is an admission of the fact that, for all the changes that have occurred in our society over the past 100 years, many black people, both men and women, are still processing the trauma and violence caused by their body's simultaneous hypervisibility and erasure. This truth becomes a potent aspect not just of the subjective experience of Carr's characters, but of the reality they inhabit, whether it is acknowledged or not. 
This review was written by Lydie Hubbard, whose most recent book is the short story collection, The Last Suspicious Holdout. The Houseboat by Dane Barr. A girl claims her boyfriend has been murdered outside a small town in Iowa, and although no body is found, collective suspicion lands on a loner who lives in a rotting houseboat along the Mississippi River. Through chapters that shift in perspective and move through time, Barr builds to a nail-biting denouement. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.